Hello there. Don't have a good day. Have a great day. Talk to me, Goose. Restless. You steal the Declaration of Independence. Why? So simple. I could do this all day. Are you watching closely? Welcome, everybody, to the One Eyed Film Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Mossberg. Today, we have Isaac Schmutzer with us today. Hey, Seth. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about Andor, I think one of the best pieces of Star Wars we've had in a long time. Isaac, what are your initial thoughts on Andor before we dive into it? Yeah, I think in the Disney era, since they've acquired it, it is probably the best piece they've released. Definitely the best TV show they've come out with. We talked about a little bit in the Is Star Wars Dead episode about how the TV show style of filmmaking is kind of hurting Hollywood. And I would say that's because most stories are meant to be made as a movie and then expanded and a lot of fluff added so that it can be a six-hour TV show. Whereas this show was meant to be a TV show. It was written for nine episodes. It was actually written for two whole seasons because they know how expansive the story can be. And it yeah. doesn't suffer from that as opposed to something like Kenobi, which could have easily been a two two and a half hour movie without all the fluff. If, if I remember rightly, I think Kenobi was actually supposed to be a movie. Yeah. And then they transitioned it to a TV show. Yeah, that was the initial plan. And that I would think was, is what killed it and made it pretty uh, terrible in my opinion. But... We already talked about that. Today we're focusing on Andor, why it's so good, and what this means for Star Wars going forward. So one of the things that I brought up in the Is Star Wars Dead episode is filming on location. And as a kind of amateur filmmaker myself, I really get into this type of stuff, like how something is made. And I really appreciate, like I said, the technological advancement of the volume stage that Mandalorian used because it makes things a lot easier, a lot cheaper to film, but you really feel like it's in a box. Andor films on location. They went to these grand mountains and they built these sets and it makes it feel so much bigger. The way that the city feels is a lot different than the way the city in the Book of Boba Fett feels because it was an actual city that they built or at least a set with shop faces and all of this interior exterior that made it feel like these were people living in a city rather than characters in a story as you said it, it just felt lived in it felt like there were actual people there whereas with boba fett it kind of felt like it was more of a just a stage piece kind of like all the characters in the background were npcs rather than people who could have lived there yeah and i think part of it is even just giving so many people a story they give the guys with the gloves the scrappers a story. They give the shop owners a story, and that kind of makes you feel like any other character you see could just as easily have their own story arc. And I think that's what's so great about the show, especially because a lot of the other shows we get kind of feel like everyone else is an NPC and just e existing in the background just for the story and not having their own life. Whereas this show makes it feel like any one of them could play a part in the story. And they do, technically, by the end. They are all part of the uprising against the Empire. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because the camera will pan across a crowd. You're like on on Ferrix, they'll pan across, and you'll be like, "Ooh, I wonder if that person could do something later on in the story." Mm -hmm. Oh, I bet you that person could do something. It's kind of just a, a guessing game because, as you said, everybody seems important. Everybody is given a role that's expanded upon. And the other thing that people have been saying about the show is that it's dark and gritty compared to what Star Wars should be. And I would agree with that. I mean, we open on a dark, rainy shot of Cassian walking down a bridge that isn't that unlike Kamino, and it just brings a much more 
serious tone to the show. And I would say that while when people say it feels like it's a show made for adults in a world that's made for kids, I, I wouldn't. I would not agree with that. I think that Star Wars is made for all ages. While Andor probably isn't the best show to let your kids watch, I think that it brings a lot of realism to the Disneyfied Star Wars that we have gotten in the past couple years. Yeah, one of the big things in Andor is death. And that death comes a multitude of ways. And often we don't see necessarily the ways that it happens, but we see the after effects and you can tell that somebody got messed up. Mm-hmm. You can tell they got thrown around. There's there's actual stakes in this episode. Their blasters actually do damage for once instead of bouncing off people's armor or whatever. People die. There's no force healing. Nothing like that. It's real. It's any of the characters could die at any moment. Like Bix's boyfriend just dies at the end of one of the episodes and he's not coming back. Like death is a real part of life. I mean, we know that Cassian makes it through, obviously, because he's in Rogue One. Mm -hmm. But every other character, we have no idea if they are going to make it out or not. And it it gives, as you say, this show, it it puts this, it puts us on edge because we're like, I really like this character. Could they die? I mean, in in every other movie, you know, it's kind of, or TV show that Disney has put out with Star Wars, it's kind of obvious who has plot armor and who doesn't. I would say that that was one of the big shocks at the end of Rogue One, is that all the characters that we followed for the whole movie died in the Death Star taking out that city. And that kind of shocked us just to have a one-time movie that now everyone's dead. And yes, they're bringing it back now with Andor being a prequel to that spinoff, but I remember one of the writers of Kenobi said it was so difficult to try and craft a story that works with or fits with the canon of Star Wars because Kenobi is sandwiched between Episode 3 and Episode 4, obviously. You know where he finishes in Episode 3 and where he starts in Episode 4, and somehow you've got to bridge that gap. I would argue, now that the show has come out, you don't need to. I would have been fine if they had just left it be or made a Kenobi series that kind of covered a different era of his life. But with something like Andor, we get no starting point for Andor. We just have an end point and we know very little about him that he is a part of the rebellion. And that's about it. Him and Mon Mothma are really the only characters that we know where they end up. And it's with the rebellion and they have very little backstory and they're filling that in now. And I think that does wonders for the character and for the story is creating an A point that then bridges to the B point that is already very vague. I mean, I'm, I understand this is about Andor, but I want to rewind to what you said about Kenobi real quick. I genuinely liked, not not the series, but there's a book called Kenobi uh, that came out. I believe it's still canon, but it describes what his life is like on Tatooine. And I liked that so much better than what the show was. I mean, he got into the nitty gritty. He got into, he made friends. He got out of his old Jedi ways. And it just, it just spoke volumes to him. And it was cool. It, it gave us backstory as to how he understands Tusken Raiders. It's just they had a better opportunity to do it, and they dropped the ball. Yeah, they had they basically had this entire script for Kenobi handed to them on a silver platter, and they failed miserably. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. It's just could have been so easy to write more of Kenobi on Tatooine, but then we had him world jumping to different planets with a character that I we I never saw coming never thought we would spend time with Leia and I thought we were going to be with Luke or at least kind of the guardian angel of Luke and yet he was barely in it. I've already ranted plenty from the uh, Is Star Wars Dead episode so back to Andor. Yeah. It, it's a show that feels real and I really appreciate that they were able to sacrifice some things such as cameos that I think should be sacrificed a lot more often. That's another thing. There is yeah. no one 
save Mon Mothma, who shows up and you recognize for the cameo effect. That's kind of not true. Oh, who? Uh, in the ISB. Is it the general? Yeah. Okay, but let's um, talk about let's talk about that though. It's it's not a cameo. I would say it's a character who's a part of the world, as opposed to a cameo like Ahsoka and Luke in the Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, but he's well known in that he's introduced in Clone Wars and he's a followed character in Clone Wars. But you're right, it's not like we're getting a Harrison Ford or a Carrie Fisher, but it's a character that is known by fans. Yeah, I would say probably the same level as Mon Mothma. Actually creating a story and a reason behind their actions. Like, again, with this show being very real, bad guys are not just bad guys. Like, the Emperor wanting to have a million Star Destroyers just because. That was just a plot device that made him seem bigger and badder than he was in episode six. It gives characters morals, at least to what they're doing and why they think they're right. Even if they're seen as the enemy and the antagonist. It's interesting because the show, while we understand that the Empire is evil, there are parts of the show where you start to second guess whether or not what the rebels are doing is right. I mean, there's there's a quote in episode seven when one of the characters, Luthen, who kind of organized the rebellion, is talking to Mon Mothma. And Mon is concerned because she's like, people will get hurt. And Luthen said, that's the plan. He's making it clear that despite all of their best intentions, people are going to get hurt. It's just the very nature of it. And it makes you second guess as to whether or not you're fine with that. And I would say, in the grand scheme of things, yes, because you understand all the bad things that the Empire is doing. But you also understand that not everyone on the Rebellion side is innocent and wanting the best for everyone because Luthen, I think, struggles from seeing people as pawns rather than friends and Mon Mothma sees them as friends instead of pawns and Andor just sees everyone as kind of a way to get what he wants. It, again, gives gives the characters reasons for believing why they believe. Yeah. And you're talking about Luthen seeing people as pawns and he's got a monologue later on in the series but we can get to that when we oh we will oh we will (laughs) it's it's possibly the best monologue i've ever heard in star wars one thing i wanted to bring up is what is star wars and why do people say this doesn't feel like star wars because the real reason people say that is just because they don't see a lightsaber for the entire show except for you know luthan ship but that was that was something special why is star wars only lightsabers and bounty hunters and all that and why can't this story that's kind of its own separate thing that is in the star wars universe why can't that be a part of it is star wars a style or is it a story so i'm a huge star wars fan i absolutely love the franchise one of the things i will say though is especially with disney buying lucasfilm out it feels like Disney has reinforced that idea of if it's not a lightsaber, it's not Star Wars. They want people to come for the experience of, you know, having a lightsaber fight, having a lightsaber battle, watching the Jedi do their magic and fight against the Sith. And I think that was especially one of the things with episode eight of the movies where there was no lightsaber on lightsaber fight and it was something that felt that many fans felt disappointed by myself for a little bit included in that because it's something that disney has drilled into us of it has to be a lightsaber there has to be jedi there has to be sith and it's refreshing to to step back from it and see 
this is not the normal world of Star Wars. This isn't something that happens on every planet. Most people go their entire lives without ever seeing a lightsaber, and it's refreshing. I would say it kind of relates to us in how we relate to, say, our government. There's a lot of attention given to politicians and everything that happens in government, in the news mostly, and yet it doesn't directly affect us. It does affect us, the decisions they make, but in the sense of the story of people's lives in the upper class like that, it does not affect us. And that's kind of what the story of Darth Vader or what someone like that feels like. But then you get to the Luke side of the story where he's a farm boy who gets called on a crazy cool mission. It normalizes it and brings it down to our level, our everyday person type of level, and it resonates with us like that. Yeah, it's something that I've noticed, and I'm sure other people have noticed a lot with a lot of films, is they take the ordinary average Joe because it's something people can relate to. And that's why I think I mentioned in the Is Star Wars Dead episode, Star Trek feels different is because it's all meant to be pristine and clean and Star Wars is meant to be dirty and thrown together pieces of scrap and all that. It makes us feel something different when everything's not new and shiny like Star Trek. So episode one starts off with Cassian on the planet of Priox Morlana, rainy planet as Seth mentioned, Uh, and he's searching for his sister, but when he finds he can't, really get any information on her he starts leaving where he gets held up uh, and kind of shaken down by a pair of security guards and he ends up killing both of them one by accident one kind of by cold blood yeah this opening scene really tells a lot about the direction the story is going one i thought that we were kind of going to be spending the whole time with him searching for his sister that kind of died off after the flashbacks ended for his past it kind of dies off after episode three when we don't really come back to it or listen to it i'm sure we'll come back to it in season two otherwise they wouldn't have set it up so prominently but then even earlier than that when we open on a a planet we don't know anything about usually a normal feel for star wars is to be like oh i know that place or that's a that's a familiar planet yes it looks like camino but it's something different it's it's a new place that they're world building and it's not one that we visit very often afterward i don't think at all i think he just it's he knows that this is the place he could get information and he's really disappointed that he doesn't find it but then when he's trying to leave and he gets shaken up by the guards and i've had the same feeling as most other people when he when he ended up shooting both of them this is a different story already we talked about death and how it's so prevalent in the show that disney usually wouldn't let something like that happen And that's why I think Tony Gilroy knows that he's kind of pushing the limits of his luck for this. And it's going to be interesting how it plays out in season two. Because we already know, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, Disney does not really like Andor because it's hiding it on its main page. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But interesting. Yeah, I wanna you talked about Tony Gilroy, and one thing I will mention about him is when he was uh, approached to write this series, it was an interesting approach because he was not a nostalgic Star Wars fan. So a lot of the things that we see, and I think that might be why this series is so refreshing, is because he's not like Dave Filoni, who is a huge Star Wars fan, and he's throwing in references left and right. Tony Gilroy was more of a Star Trek guy, I believe. So it's it's nice that we're not having to work, or we're not getting, we're not being force-fed references and quotes to distract us from a bad story. In in this yeah. case, it's the opposite, where we're being given a good story, and now people are complaining that there's no cameos or references. We're impossible to please. <laughs> I think people need to grow up and realize that not everything needs to be Disneyfied with, you know, Marvel connecting all their movies and Star Wars referencing other characters all the time. A good movie or show can just be good on its own and we've been indoctrinated to think that we need some 
assurance that this is actually something we want and connects to the other thing we like. So then once he gets to Ferrix, we get this feeling of the workman's life and this friend that he has, Brasso, is a scrapper out in the yard. You can already tell that they're good friends just because of the way they talk to each other. But Brasso is like in the middle of his work day and Andor interrupts him. And then, you know, later he goes and talks to Bix who is running the store with her boyfriend. And it really grounds the show in how these people work. And then a little bit further in the episode, you have the guy who rings the bell in the tower telling us that the workday is over. That's just a little, it, it, it's a, I would say it's a little attention to detail, but it's a big part of the episode just because so much attention is put on it. It could have been just a background thing, but the way they focus on just this guy and his one job to go and ring the bell at the end of the workday, again, grounds the story. And one interesting thing about that guy is he's given an official title. He's given the title of Time Grappler. Ooh. Yeah, mysterious. But yeah, it's it's just something that is a part of everyday life on Ferrix. And it's something that we're introduced to and we spend time developing and focusing on. Like I said before, we know that Cassian is going to end up with the Rebellion. So yes, there is some character development to do to a certain point, to the point B. And they do it well because when you're part of the Rebellion, you kind of have to look out for everyone. Whereas right now, he's very obviously looking out for himself and willing to sacrifice others for that. So yeah, I would say that is good character development to, to create a point A that very nicely transitions into point B. And we haven't even gotten to that part. Like by the end of season one, we have not gotten to point B, knowing that there's more story to be told besides just, you know, the showrunners telling us that there's going to be season two. Um, we do meet on Ferrix, the brand new droid that I'm sure will be making Disney millions of dollars from sales <laughs> named B2EMO. He's a cute little, would you call him like a, kind of looks like a trash can. Yeah, <laughs> or a little little uh, coffee table. He's he's yeah, really cute. That's more of it. He's almost like a like an RC car <laughs> that you just have around. <laughs> an RC coffee table. <laughs> uh, I saw a headline that says we root for no one except for B2MO in episode one because we're kind of realizing that everyone's kind of a jerk except B2MO. He's he's really cute, and I think that is something Star Wars has realized is a real moneymaker is the toys they can make from droids and the connection we make. And we'll see this, I believe, in episode two during the flashbacks, but his original state where he was less chipped up and scratched up and without his stutter and just more wholesome. He's a very cute droid. I love the design. I really appreciate when they can create something new that we all love. I think of BB-8, even though the sequels were not well received, I do appreciate BB-8's design where they turned him into a rolling droid. I mean, that's just a cool design for a droid, and I appreciate different styles that they make for these droids that kind of have their own place in each part of the universe. Yeah, and I think part of why BB-8 could have been so unique and well-loved is up to that point, we had R2-D2 and those style of R2 units where you can kind of tell that's just like an obvious... Like from the, the filmmaking perspective, it's obvious that's just a robot or somebody's, you know... in you got some tiny kid or something inside of that moving the legs and stuff. And then you've got the protocol droids, which are obviously just people inside of mm-hmm. suits. And then BB-8 comes along, and it's like a floating head over a rolling body, and it's kind of like, whoa, how did they do that? Yeah. The thing I will say, though, also about B2EMO, is things on Ferrix are old and worn and used. I mean, we can see that with the gloves. They all look like they've been well used. We see that with B2EMO. In fact, when he's talking to Cass, he has a spot, which I'm very grateful we received, where he he has to stop, and he literally says, data lag. Hmm. And Cass asks, 
asks him to lie for him and he like does a quick self-check and he goes i have enough power to lie stuff that we've never seen before in star wars and we've kind of just assume happens we now get to see and we're like i never thought about this but i like that it's there from what i remember he actually uses more power to lie like physical battery power to lie and that's a cool concept that it takes more effort for a droid to be fake it's kind of the same way with us and it's a good analogy to kind of think about oh maybe it's just easier to tell the truth we're also introduced to deputy inspector karn a very interesting character one of the first we will get to know who's on the opposing team but we spend quite a bit of time with he seems kind of like a a blue collar just i want to do the best at what i do guy of course i mean mean, that's that's his whole character is he wants to be the best at least at what he does but he also kind of wants to climb the ranks as much as possible and we see why later later on in the the series but besides the point right now i mean he's he literally says i spent all night writing up this report for you and he tailored his uniform. He, he just seems like a, like somebody who wants attention drawn to him and, as he said, wants to move up the ladder. By being the best he can. Yeah, by being the best he can be. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of gets him in trouble in a couple episodes, but we'll get there in a little bit. Oh, for sure. We receive throughout the episode and throughout these first three episodes flashbacks of Cassian on a planet called Canari, where he grew up. And one of the interesting things about those flashbacks is there are no adults in them. It's all kids ranging from what looks like age 10, 11 to 18, 19. I never noticed that. There there are no adults anywhere throughout that. Um, and another thing that I noticed is their clothes don't fit. They've all got, like, belts or some other way of making sure they stay on them. So, obviously, those clothes are made for somebody larger, like an adult. So, the question arises, what happened to the adults? Yeah. And we see that, again, later on, I think next episode as well. We assume what happened, but yeah. Huh, talk about that in a little bit. So, moving on to episode two, I actually realized by episode two, also pointed out to me by people online, that the intro music changes between episodes. And it kind of became a thing where we were looking forward to what that intro music meant, or at least what it sounded like, where it was the same theme, but it was done differently. Yeah, it was, it, it set the tone for the episode. It, kind of directed us as to what we were supposed to feel throughout that. Um, For instance, the episode one intro music, to me, it gave me like a a sort of excited stretching of legs feel. Like this series is starting starting off, I'm excited, I want to see what happens. Hmm. It kind of gave me a similar feeling to uh, the music of Test Drive, if you know what that is, from the How to Train Your Dragon movie. It's, It's got that same kind of we're just stretching our legs. We're we're feeling out what we're going to do, but we're also excited for what's going to happen. Yeah, the intro music kind of is just as important as the opening shot where it sets the tone for this, at least the first couple of scenes. And if you go back and analyze it, yeah, it, it it is preparing you for what's coming in the show. And it is also an analogy in some sense to compared to what instruments they use and what happens in the episode. Like, is it a bunch of bare bones only, all, only what you need, or is it a full orchestra? When you kind of once we get to the part where everyone's kind of working as a team, I believe that's what happens in that episode. Theme music that everything is together and working well and sounds beautiful. It, it does seem like when we have episodes focusing mainly on individuals, we get like individual parts of an orchestra, like the strings or the brass. But when everybody's together for 
the last two episodes, it's a fuller orchestra. I think sound design and composing is just as important as framing of a shot or the story arc that you tell. It's essential and can be used as a tool rather than just a necessity. I would argue music might be more important than the framing of a shot because music is often something you don't pay attention to in the background, Mm -hmm. but it kind of sets your mind for what you're expected to feel. Sure, I agree. Like if you hear a trumpet blowing you know, a, a steady beat that's kind of uplifting, that's what your mind's going to feel. You're going to be like, oh, this is an uplifting scene coming up. We're going to see, you know, somebody win. But if you have that same scene and you're playing slow, sad violin music over it, you're going to be like, oh, something something sad's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But you don't, you don't think about that. It's just the way your body or your mind naturally reacts to the music. Yep, and the way that composers have been using music recently can be pretty interesting. Like, I think to... Probably the one thing I can really appreciate about Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness was the fight with the music notes. Yes, it was a little on the nose, but the way that they would have had to choreograph the scene as well as compose the music was probably a lot of fun and really interesting to make. And now this, where you have each episode kind of starting off with a different vibe, depending on how the theme music is played, really well made and put together and planned out. Interesting. I never thought about it that way with Doctor Strange. But now on to episode two... We are starting to see how people's individual stories are coming together. We understand why Karn is a part of the story now. He is kind of tracking Cassian and the murder of the two guards that happened in episode one. We're seeing all these stories kind of come together, but we're also being introduced to more stories. We are introduced to Luthen more as a character, at least as a mysterious character for now, but he slowly gets more character development, obviously, as the show goes on. Uh, I'll start off with what we start off with, with the intro music. The subtitles on Disney Plus, which, by the way, I highly suggest you watch with subtitles. Helps you pick up on some stuff you never know. For instance, subtitles state it as suspenseful music, which I found very interesting that they're telling us what we're supposed to feel, but I like it. Yeah, the sometimes the subtitles can give away something that you usually wouldn't pick up on. You Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's kind of spoilery, but yeah. As I alluded to earlier, right away when the episode opens up, we discover how... Uh, the kids on Canari kind of got to the position they were in. When we go past a, a gigantic mine uh, that's kind of just dug into the ground, and we see a lot of the kids look at it with a sad, kind of mournful look. So it's pretty safe to assume that their parents probably died in that. Yeah, I like those Easter eggs that aren't even Easter eggs. They're just kind of suggestions that we can fill in the gaps, either with our own story, and that's kind of... The interesting thing about Star Wars is there's so many things that you can write a story about. That alone is a whole series in and of itself that could be really interesting to delve into, like what happened to the parents of these kids. And I mean, it's pretty obvious that they were put to work, but why and how and what happened to them? And was this the Empire or was this some rogue leaders who needed money from mining and all that? Probably a good idea to mention. I don't think we have up to this point, but uh, the kids on Canari are walking after a downed ship that they saw as sort of like a an expedition to see what's going on and that's why they pass by that mine cyril karn throws out kind of an apb on they don't have a name yet but on a man from canari because that's what cassian asked about nobody really puts two and two together but one thing i will say is bix sees the message about a man from canari she's aware that's cassian 
and she kind of runs out to tell Cassian that people are looking for him. And then when her boyfriend walks in and looks at the same screen she was looking at, that is the first time we have seen Orabash, the spelling language that is used in Star Wars, translated for us. Most other times the Orabash is just there for fans to translate later. And it usually, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect translation if you take time to go through each movies where you see Orabash, most of them translate to something in English. But yes, that is interesting that... They would keep the Orabesh, but it was a plot point that we need to know, so they translate it for us. Tim, Bix's boyfriend, later turns Cassian in because he's drunk, and as sometimes happens, drunk people think stuff that doesn't actually happen. Not even just drunk people. Normal people think stuff is going on that isn't actually going on. He overreacts, turns Cassian in, and Cyril Karn and... A new character we're introduced to, Lieutenant Moss, uh, come after Cassian with, I will have to say, seems like an overkill amount of guards. Yeah, this is only a little double homicide, and they bring out half their men for this for some reason. I don't know. I don't know what their thought was. Maybe they just thought that he was more dangerous than he actually is, maybe because of his connection to Canari. But it is interesting how many men they bring out for just one guy. One thing that I was talking to somebody, can't remember who, but I was talking about this part in the episode where we see all of those guys. And uh, the person I was talking to went, well, you, you realize those guys are kind of supposed to be like the police and they're the boys in blue, which is a nickname for police. Mm-hmm. So I just found that very kind of a funny, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but kind of just a funny little, yeah, it's the boys in blue. Yeah, I would say they're, they're the enforcers of the law. Um, I believe we're introduced to Luthen as well, at least in, in greater detail. Yeah, it's uh, more of a, a shadowy reference of like, yeah, I have a buyer who wants to meet with you. So Cassian has this tracker that now Bix has gotten a hold of her buyer who he thinks is going to buy this off of him just as a deal and then be done with it. But Luthen has other plans, as we'll see in a little bit. An Imperial Star Path unit, I believe it's called. But yeah, I believe it essentially is just a tracker. I think one of the last things to say about episode two is, is the flashback to Canari where the kids finally get to the crash ship. They're attacked, but they win. But they get to see the terrible repercussions of this crash and the crew's yellow faces, which kind of suggests that they were poisoned and kind of a, a hit of reality for them. And they're just intrigued by the spaceship that has crashed. Which they don't do that usually. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say one thing uh, also on episode two. At the very end, uh, Cyril Karn gives a speech to the assembled men. And I will say... It is possibly the worst speech I've ever heard. Yes, I think it was supposed to be that. <laughs> it was awful and flat. It seems like something he practiced. He's been practicing for years, hoping for a situation like this. But it's just not a good speech to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that was just really funny. It was meant to cause us to cringe just because we know that they're in the wrong. But it's also funny to just hear him try and be more epic than he actually is so now episode three is kind of the end of the first arc of the series and this first initial story on ferrix as well as the end of the flashbacks of cassian and kind of how marva works into this as well as karn's whole (laughs) employment as an officer all comes crashing to the ground by the end of this episode yeah his career comes down in a flaming heap of metal. But I would also say that Luthen's appearance and involvement in this episode sets up obviously future arcs and the rest of the story. But 
this is probably the first episode of the next arc, even though I would want to say it's episode four. It's definitely episode three where Luthen is talking to Cassian, getting in his head about why he wants to fight the Empire and why they think it's so bad. Yeah, I, I can kind of agree with that. It's a transitional episode, but I do still feel like because the flashbacks are there, it's it's still uh, it's still a part of the first arc. So let's start with the flashback where Cassian is on the ship and searching around, and then Marva and her husband are coming to uh, scavenge valuable items and find Cassian, and they have compassion on this young young boy, and they kind of kidnap him, honestly, but also rescue him because they know that this ship is dangerous and obviously we know that she ends up being the motherly figure to him one thing i will say is i don't think that marva and i believe clem is her husband's name yep i don't believe they were fully on the right side of the law with this one the way that they say it makes me think they started this interesting i mean they're talking about how they have only a certain amount of time before the republic comes to investigate this and they need to get out of here. They can only take what they can carry. It seems like they're, they were the ones that caused this. Or at least they know more than they should. Yeah. They're not in the same position as the kids where they see a ship go down and they go to scope it out. They definitely had more knowledge in either causing it or just knew that it would happen. I don't want to jump ahead too far, but as the flashbacks kind of intersperse throughout the episode, we end the episode with Cassian on a ship being taken to a new life, both in the flashback with Marva bringing him kind of as her new son, but also, spoiler alert, at the end of episode three, Cassian is going with Luthen to start a new life, kind of pivoting his trajectory in life and doing something different. And the way they cut the scenes back and forth show us that there is a parallel between the two. They're riding off into the sunset on both of them. Literally. <laughs> yes, literally. Yeah, And usually that's at the end of a movie. Usually you think of that as like a Western movie where cowboy gets the girl and they ride off into the sunset. And that's where that phrase comes from. But yes, Cassian is literally riding into the sunset on a ship to a new life, a new direction that his life is going. But backing up a little bit, Cassian finally meets his buyer, who he thinks is just a normal purchaser of black market goods that he has managed to to get. And this this Starpath unit is funny because Luthen knows that he doesn't actually want it. I believe it plays a later role in a future episode. But Cassian is so focused on this gimmick, this MacGuffin, when he doesn't really get until later that Luthen was only testing him and is testing him kind of this whole episode. First, he obviously meets him to quote-unquote sell the Starpath unit. But then when they start talking, Luthen is getting into his head. And Luthen is asking a lot of questions, but it's pretty obvious that he knows the answer and wants to lead Cassian to that answer rather than actually wondering what the answer is. I believe he says it's either later this episode or the next episode. He tells Cassian, it was never about the Starpath unit. It was always about you. Mm -hmm. And obviously Luthen has done research on him. We discover that in this episode. Luthen knows more than he ever should about Cassian and his backstory. This was this was the one scene that they released before the show actually dropped, and this was starting to get people riled up about this because it was good dialogue. It was a good back and forth between the two that made it feel different. And especially when Cassian was talking to him and Luthen's like, how did you do it? And Cassian goes, what, to steal from the Empire? What do you need? A uniform, some dirty hands, and an Imperial toolkit? They're so proud of themselves. They don't even care. They're so fat and satisfied. They can't imagine it. Can't imagine what? That someone like me would ever get inside their house. 
walk their floors, spit in their food, take their gear. And I think that people resonated with that because that's exactly what happened in the first Star Wars movie ever, is when Luke and Han dressed up as stormtroopers and just walked right in. Like, as much as the Empire is a massive government authority, they are really disunified in how they operate and Cassian has seen this and used it to his advantage like it's not so much a fix for a new hope saying that Luke and Han could just walk in as stormtroopers but it's an explanation and a really good one at that and how the empire is so haughty that they wouldn't check even a simple stormtrooper or in Cassian's case a simple worker who can take whatever he wants if you just walk right in yeah Luthen asked Cassian and he actually paid Cassian for the information on how to walk in and Cassian seems to tell Luthen with an air of like this it's ridiculous how easy it is like this is this isn't worth I think it was like a thousand credits this is information that's cheaper than that anyone could do it and Luthen is not only testing him to see that he can steal something because he's recruiting him for this heist but also seeing his mindset of if he's ready to take these risks and is strong enough mentally to go up against the Empire. Yeah, throughout this entire conversation, as you said, it's it's obvious that Luthen is steering him towards an answer. And it's obvious that he is trying to... He's manipulating with Cassian's emotions and his, his thought process to lead him towards a specific feeling and a specific answer. And he gets that answer when... Cassian has the blaster to his forehead and Luthen says, I am giving you an opportunity to do what you've always loved to do. Are you going to take it or are you going to kill me? And Cassian finally lets down his pride a little bit to understand that this man has a bigger plan than he can ever realize. Yeah, Cassian seems to just be living in the moment and worrying about that, whereas Luthen is seeing a big picture thing. Exactly. That's that's all what Luthen does. He knows what his end goal is, and he he lets people know very little about that. But they come to an agreement. Karn's men are now on the building. They escape through some diversion, and this is also the scene where all of Ferrix is banging on all the metal to distract Karn's men. And Marva has a little monologue at that point, and she's talking about how the noise is really annoying, but it's when it stops that's the most worrying. To be clear, yeah, she's talking to two of the security guys that were left at her house. Yep, and they're wondering why she's so calm about this is because she knows kind of the Ferrex way of dealing with things. And the way that that monologue went was crazy cool just when she said, that's when it stops, and then you're scared, or something like that. Throughout that entire thing, I was just thinking, hi, my name is Marva Andor, and this is my TED Talk on psychological warfare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's she's been in the in the thick of it for a while and she <laughs> she understands she's like this is my time to shine um yeah but this is a scene that i would say fits well with my ideology of the lack of sound creates a better feeling for the audience than including sound now of course like we were talking about earlier theme music can be a very powerful way to show emotion or tell us what emotion we're supposed to be feeling but the lack of sound here when the bells and the chimes and all that stop gives us almost a sense of dread, the same dread that the soldiers kind of are supposed to feel where they're like, oh, what what happened? What's happening? What's going to happen? And it's yeah, and really it, well It's really well done. Yeah, it's. I agree. We are put in the shoes of those soldiers when the, the banging stops. We're kind of like, something's about to happen. Something's going to go down. 
and we're on edge as much as the soldiers. And like we said before, then they ride off into the sunset and that arc of Andor ends and we're on to episode four. Episode four starts the next arc that we have on a planet called Aldani. And it's here that Lucin really recruits Cassian for a job to help him out. In this arc, we are also introduced to Dedra Mir, who is kind of the epitome of understanding why the quote-unquote bad guys do what they do. She has a reason, she has emotions, feelings for what orders she gives, and how she deals with people, especially like people like Karn, and gathers information to further her search of Cassian. Dedra is a part of what's called the ISB, the Imperial Security Bureau. And essentially their job is to figure out who's not loyal. They're kind of like, you could say, kind of like the SS in World War II, Nazi Germany. They're kind of just trying to figure out who's not loyal. But one scene that I really appreciated is Dedra's talking to her immediate supervisor, Partagaz, captain or general, something like that. And she recites like what the goal of the ISB is, word for word. And Partagaz calls her out on it. And he explains... Security is an illusion. You want security? Call the Navy. Launch a regiment of troopers. We are health care providers. We treat sickness. We identify symptoms. We locate germs, whether they arise from within or have come from the outside. The longer we wait to identify a disorder, the harder it is to treat the disease. And I think that's a really cool line because of how we know the story ends up with the rebels finally taking over. But knowing that they, quote unquote, didn't catch it soon enough is crazy to think about. But that's their mentality of healthcare providing instead of actual security like they promise. Yeah, it's, it is very interesting that that's the way that it is phrase they're healthcare providers because then it again it's seeming like what they're doing is for the greater good of the empire and it's not just culling the herd one thing i have to say about partigas is that he says that so straightforward and i would chalk it up to partly being the actor just knowing his lines well and just saying i'm straightforward but it, it's a reflection on the character who has come to believe this through and through and is very professional. Everything he says, there is no stutter, there is no pause. He just says it because he is, I would say, a good leader who knows how to talk well, but also the way he says that line just shows that he believes that through and through. Yeah, throughout this throughout this entire part of the ISB where we get to see Partagaz, every time like he's involved in it, I always think of him as like the old tenured professor who wants to help the students he wants to get them to where they want to go but he also wants to make sure they work for it and they understand what they're doing so now we get kind of the, to the meat of luthan's heist that he is telling cassian he's now a part of he gives cassian a fake name he goes and talks to val who is the co-leader almost because luthan is in charge but She's kind of the one who heads up the entire team, and she has some choice words, let's say that. <laughs> yeah, when Luthen tells Vel that the only option she has is to either use Cassian or to call the mission off, she, she, she turns to him and she goes, Plug in some new person. It'll tear the team apart. Well, that's not much of a team, is it? Oh. Yeah, I was like, whoa. <laughs> Wise words from Luthen. Yeah, as much as a team is made up of people who trust each other, the inclusion of somebody else should always be a possibility because sometimes there is somebody else that you need, just like was shown in the show. It is interesting to see how committed they are to this heist because they know how much work they've put into it and we learn a little bit more further into the episode. And it's the anticipation they're building, both this episode and the next, of what this heist is going to be like because a lot of what happens in modern movies is that they just skip over it. That we could have had, let's say, Kenobi 
because we love to hate on Kenobi. We could have had a cool high scene where he figures out how to secretly get into Fortress Inquisitorius, and instead we just get a couple seconds showing that he swims up through the underwater hole. But the way that they actually show that they're planning this and it's actually going to happen is intriguing to show that not only do they have a plan, but we get to see it. And we're not just going to skip ahead and learn that it happened and they don't get to show us. I think a good show writer will show us how it happened rather than just telling us that it happened. At one point when Vel is walking Cassian back to the camp where all the rest of the members of the group are, we get to see... Well, this is another one of those scenes where they are in the live action place they're walking on the side of a mountain i believe it's in scotland they're they're walking along the side of a mountain and there's a river running beneath them and Cass turns to vel and he says shh quiet listen and vel hears the distinctive sound of a tie fighter and she's like quick hide and they hide and we see the tie fighter come up and over the side of the mountain and scream through like the valley where the river is and you see the water fly up everywhere and it is so good. Yeah, it's one of those scenes where you you realize that it's an actual place, and then we're reminded that it's supposed to not be an actual place. It's supposed to be in their world. It's like how I have always said that Endor looks like Minnesota, just because there's a lot of pine trees everywhere, and it looks like the wilderness, but then you get the Millennium Falcon flying overhead, and you realize that, oh yeah, this this is Star Wars. It's, it's letting you know that it's real, but it's not your real. Before we get to Mon Mothma, we get... Cyril again. Uh-huh. And he gets to go visit home and see his, I don't know, Italian mother? <laughs> I don't know. She's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> she can't be Italian. Italy doesn't exist in Star Wars. You're right. <laughs> she yeah. has a very Italian manner of treating him. Yes, she's she's very caring, but also very blunt with him and doesn't really respect his privacy. Nope. Yeah, it, it's interesting to see that we're going to keep up with him even after he got fired. We're showing that he's still going to play a role in the story, even though he doesn't have the same position he had. And that makes it interesting because we get to follow somebody who, as, as you said, we thought their story was done. We thought their time was done in the series. But it's exciting to follow them and see, nope, it's not actually done yet. Before we move on to episode five, we get to meet Mon Mothma, played by Genevieve O'Reilly, who I think has done a great job with the character. Obviously, the original actress who played her in A New Hope can't play her anymore because she's older. But I believe that she portrays a young Mon Mothma really well in the political side of her before she goes to the rebellion. And this kind of turmoil that she has while she's trying to be loyal to the rebellion while also putting on a front to be in the Senate. I think she does a fantastic job with it. Yeah. Um, and we see Mon Mothma uh, visiting an antique shop, which we learn is Luthen's other life, is real life, not real life. It's got you guessing, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> no, he... certain as which one he actually is and which one is his secondary life. Yeah, we see him putting on a, a new robe and a wig, and he even does his little kind of hand gesture to show that he's more uh, fabulous, he's more professional now, but then he, it immediately dies because he knows that that's an act. He's got to get into that character of the antiques dealer that's all a front for his rebellion needs. And Mon Mothma is just a financial supplier of Luthans who's uh, giving him money for the rebellion. Exactly. But I will say, throughout the next three episodes, we get to see to the inside of Luthen's shop. There are a lot of Easter eggs. This is this is probably the closest that we get to fan service that this show gets. Absolutely. And it's not even it's not even direct. It's if you know the lore of Star Wars or have a keen eye. It's not it's not anything in your face. It's just subtle. And I think that's how Easter eggs should be. Is just 
a little thing that's the actual fans will get, but the normal viewer doesn't lose anything by not knowing about them. So the items that we see in Luthen's shop throughout the series is the Starkiller armor set. Uh, we see a set of Mandalorian armor, a Nabooian queen headdress, presumably Padme's, uh, Jedi and Sith holocrons. We see part of a mural from Star Wars Rebel series. We see Plo Koon's mask, the Jedi Temple guard mask from Clone Wars, some Wookiee armor, some really hidden Easter eggs. We see Indiana Jones's whip and the Sankara stones also from Indiana Jones. I love that. We all remember seeing 3PO and R2 in Indiana Jones, and also we get an Indiana Jones reference in the Star Wars movie. And now we see that it's still continuing, even though George Lucas has no say in the series anymore. This is a bigger meta reference to just the relationship they used to have, and it's so nice. It almost It's almost like the E.T. reference in the prequels, where you wonder if maybe, just maybe, they are in the same universe as we are. Uh, we also learned that Mon's staff is slowly being replaced by Imperial plants, hoping to learn information about her, and I believe that's how the episode ends. Yeah. And then we move on to episode five, which just gives us more preparation for the heist that they're about to do. I'm going to touch on the intro music again briefly, and that it sounds and feels like a ticking time bomb, which is kind of what this episode is. I remember that. I remember hearing that and kind of feeling anxious. Yeah, we see everybody getting ready to launch her attack. They get into position. Mon is kind of just feeling backlash from her family from the senate yeah she's really just feeling the weight of living that double life trying to be one person for the people she's around especially her husband and daughter and that she kind of has to go against the people that she loves the most while also living for a cause she knows is a lot better than what she says in her everyday life most of our time this episode is spent with the heist crew getting ready and training and kind of talking about life. I think that is the focus of this episode, talking about why they're doing what they're doing, Skeen and his snooping into Cassian and his life, and then also Nemec, who wrote a manifesto, and that is really interesting. (laughs) We can see that this team is really kind of a ragtag group, but also that they are highly trained and ready to do the jobs that they were hired for. You have the one guy who's currently working for the base that they are infiltrating and this is kind of a reflection of mon's character who is living a double life for one for the empire one for the rebellion and he's struggling too he's like this is this is kind of difficult for me to to do this i'm i'm having people kind of check me out and it's making me uneasy but he's got to keep going the the heist is only a couple days away skeen is shady character i think that's the point but what's interesting (laughs) about this is that we're told to trust him and by the end of episode six, it's shown that he is not worthy of our trust. It's a it's a yeah. catch twenty two that we're that's pulled on us, the audience, as well as Cassian. Yeah. So the group for the Aldani mission is Vel, who's the leader, Tinta, uh, Nemec, who seems like the the kid who's all in on it, Skeen, who's the shady one, um, Terramin, who is the guy living the double life as an imperial officer and gorn who is we're told an ex stormtrooper this is interesting because it's pretty obvious that the ex stormtrooper arc has been done before with finn and it was one of lucas's initial thoughts and plans for the sequels before that he sold to disney and now we get almost a third variation that is pretty interesting yeah it is very interesting oh sorry um 
I believe I mixed the two up. Gorn is the Imperial officer, and Terramin is the ex-stormtrooper. We cut to seeing Gorn doing his job as an Imperial. This is also the introduction to the whole reason they're doing the heist now. And that's the eye that the locals kind of have as their holiday of the planet going in the asteroid belt of the planet nearby, I guess, and really making this beautiful astronomical show. Yeah, it's like a, a meteor, meteor shower sh- almost. But, but it's but it's, it's not. not. Yeah. Yeah. Their their holiday kind of celebrating this astronomical show. And we'll get to that in episode six. But they're using not only Cassian's ideology of hiding in plain sight among the Empire, but also using distractions to say, look over here, but I'm over here. I mean, that, yeah. I'd, I'd say that's the perfect heist in any good movie is that you're trying to divert the attention or do it during something that everyone else is going to be paying attention to, and then you're somewhere else doing what you need to do. So we learned that their use of the eye is both as a distraction, but also their way out. Because we're told it's something that has been plotted perfectly down to, like, the second, where it happens every single year. So they're planning on using that as a distraction to slip into the base. I don't think we've said it yet, but the whole point of it is they're going to steal credits, they're going to steal money from the garrison, and then they're going to take a, a, a ship and fly out of there. And they're hoping that because they know exactly how the sh- the asteroid show is supposed to go, they'll be able to get out. And the uh, TIE fighters that will presumably chase them will get caught up and they won't be able to make it through. And then we see something, again, I don't think we've ever seen in Star Wars. We see Daedra taking pills, which is interesting because it shows us, again, that the people of Star Wars aren't the perfect, pristine always up on energy characters that we're used to they're kind of like us they they get tired yeah they get tired they have mental health issues they they're still human and that's something you kind of have to overlook in actually most movies if they're fantastical movies is that there probably wasn't a fall there isn't the real concept of sin by that name in these movies but it is but it exists to us the audience and we understand you know good and bad we understand human depravity we understand our bodies are falling apart because of sin and all of that. So you just have to kind of ignore it when it comes to these movies because these movies are supposed to take you out of the world we live in for a moment to a fantastical place where it's either better or there is a different normal. That's That, that I believe, is the reason we watch movies. And even so, you can still ground it in a way that makes it relatable. Movies and shows are trying to take us out of the broken world that we currently live in, and they hide that with always making the characters seem like they're well-rested and ready to go and there's no real like mental health issues. Yeah, I almost wonder if that's why people have responded negatively to this is because they're almost reminded of their own personal life while watching this in that as movies and shows are supposed to take us out of our world, as it grounds this show in sort of a more realistic world, it's reminding us that this could really happen and it is almost depressing to some people, I guess, and that's why they're opposed to this where it's not fantastical to the point where you just forget about things like eating there's a lot of (laughs) i don't want to say there's a lot of eating but we're reminded that characters have to eat sometimes and usually that's something that's a little thing that i sometimes think about is like when do they eat when did these characters eat how do they eat just because they're off doing these things all day long when did they stop at mcdonald's and grab something We, we don't usually think about that and this movie is really bringing it back to the essentials of humanity even though humanity is a thing for us not for the star wars characters it's a necessity type story where they need to eat they need to live they need to travel all that stuff all right as we end kind of the second arc of the episodes we are 
rewarded with the heist finally taking place. And I gotta say, really well put together, especially when we get to the eye, the actual visualization of the eye. Beautiful. Well done beyond anything I could even compare it to. There are very few scenes or shots that I can say made me feel in awe. And not only that, but they also gave it a reason for happening. Like they say that the planet they're on is moving through an asteroid field kind of at higher speeds than usual. And that's why the asteroids kind of are flying through the atmosphere overhead and creating this streaky effect where there's so many asteroids at once. It makes sense that this is happening. It's almost physically possible. But here, as we are in the middle of the heist, the group is kind of showing their guerrilla side where they take the commandant's wife and son and are holding them at gunpoint and literally you think that they might shoot them at any point well absolutely this is part of that scene where it's this series starts to blur the lines between okay who's really the good guys here because i mean it's they're very cold-blooded about how they do it yep i mean they're they're jabbing the blasters into the, the back of people's heads they're saying you know if if we don't make it out everybody goes down with us it really starts to blur the lines. It almost makes us anxious for what we have set up as the heroes. And if we almost wonder, are these actually the heroes? Have we been duped to think that these are the good guys? And in a yeah. sense, yes, we have, because they're the protagonists, the people we are following in the story structure. But when you start seeing questionable morals, you wonder, whose side am I really on? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's back up a bit. <laughs> we're at like the back half of the episode <laughs> episode starts with the group camped out on the side of a hill a little bit outside of the garrison they can see it and stuff but nemec is talking to cassian and he says when he can't sleep he writes mm-hmm. and something that he said i think can sometimes apply to us struggling to understand why my faith doesn't calm me i believe in something why am i so unsettled i mean you have nothing you sleep like a stone i think nemec's inner processing about all that he believes and his own questioning of why can really reflect our thought processes as we hopefully are questioning our own faith. Why do we believe what we believe, not just taking it at face value? Because I believe a lot of what the characters who are part of the rebellion suffer from is that they take it at face value. And when they realize why they're fighting, they really become really engaged in the rebellion. Yeah, and it's something as Christians that we're told. We're told not to just accept our faith. We're told to question it. Because, I mean, what's the point of doing lip service to something and saying, like, oh, yeah, I believe it, if what you're really doing is just that. It's just lip service. You're not really believing. You have to question, why do I believe this? What is the reasoning behind that? And then you truly start to understand, okay, this is why I believe. So the guys who are part of the group, they dress up in the Imperial uniforms and they are kind of guarding the structure that the Donnies are about to gather around for their ceremony. And they're kind of having a discussion about how the Empire has treated locals in recent years as the Empire kind of wants to be all industrial, whereas the locals still want to have a respect for their land. Yeah, uh, the the Commandant you know, it says something about this that's interesting. He says, We found the best way to steer them as we'd like is to offer alternatives. You put a number of options on the table, and they're so wrapped up in choosing they fail to notice you've given them nothing they thought they wanted at the start. A lot of those quotes just kind of, you know, are written towards the audience rather than for the story, because they're so direct and so detailed that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, you can tell that's more of 
the ones that, while it kind of helps with the plot, it's directed towards us in the audience. Long story short, the first part of the heist is very successful. They make their way into the garrison, and while all the soldiers are distracted watching the eye, uh, they slip down into the basement where the money is, and there they quote-unquote recruit some of the soldiers who are left down there to help them out. Mm. Uh, recruit is not the right word for it because it's more of forced to do it at gunpoint. Um, but that part goes without a hitch until um, the comms that they managed to jam reveal that they jammed everything except for the comm channel that they are using. And the officer who is running that discovers that and listens to them and brings... A group of soldiers down with him to help stop the robbery. And that's when they're caught and ends up in a firefight where they lose a couple of their men, both on the commandant's side and on the rebel side. Yeah, and this is especially where we really start to see the fact that blasters genuinely do damage to people. Because in previous installments, it almost feels like you can get hit a couple times in your plastic armor be fine. Whereas now you take one body shot and you're done. Yes, yeah, people are flipping over railings and getting blown backwards. It's brutal. Yeah, it is. But throughout all of this, they managed to open up the vault and load up a bunch of the credits so that they can take off with it and steal it. I believe the number we're given is over 80 million credits they stole. Wow. Yeah. Even crazier is they took a very small percentage of what was in that vault. Yeah. And I think that's when you, look at, when you look at pictures of like the vault as they're loading it up, you see there's it goes further back and they haven't touched the stacks further back. Yeah. And it, it, it does a good job showing scale. And and obviously the credit is supposed to be a dollar. I don't think there's any sort of inflation or uh, difference in value. It's just supposed to be something other than the literal word dollar but yeah it's supposed to be a lot of money so that we feel the pressure of getting this right and making it actually happen harriman uh dies and so does gorn so they're down to four and then as they make their escape they have to like launch the shuttle kind of down a kind of like a, a roller coaster launch kind of thing mm-hmm. to give to let them build up speed uh nemec poor nemec gets crushed by capitalism <laughs> that's the that's the phrase that goes around it is a very symbolic death like that is very intentional the way that the way that the palette of credits crushes his lower half and so he's paralyzed it's kind of a crappy way to go because he got out of the the shootout only to be crushed by yeah the the palette of credits mm-hmm. but yeah but then we get up into the air and we really get to see the eye i was waiting for this and entire episode i remember i, I have to <laughs> oh it is something else when they finally get above the clouds and you see the streaks of smoke almost that the asteroids are leaving and just the way that the way that it looks like an eye i realized finally i was like why why are they calling it the eye and then i saw it and i was like oh yeah that's why but it's so beautiful it's almost like the northern lights times 10 yeah it's like the northern lights if you separated each in like if you separated the colors into thousands of tiny little micro meteors or whatever and threw them through the atmosphere oh it is so gorgeous that was the that was the wow moment of this show was the eye and they knew that they had to nail that and i think they did a great job yeah absolutely and we see that throughout the episode as um a group of tie fighters get scrambled as 
they make their escape and everything the eye is just continuously going on throughout it it's a big contrast between something beautiful and natural that's happening and everyone's wowing at and then the intensity and the loss that we feel during the heist after getting crushed nemec is actually alive but uh fading fast but they need him in order to make their escape because as mentioned the eye is just a bunch of tiny little asteroids flying through the atmosphere and those asteroids blow ships up as we see from the tie fighters there are three ties that go after them and all three get blown up by the eye i gotta interject really quick another thing we've been talking about a grounded show and making it feel real there's a shot of a tie pilot climbing into his ship and then it launching we we think of them mostly as just faceless antagonists and that shot again makes it feel real as the tie pilot climbs down into his ship yeah we don't typically get to see that part of the process of them just hopping in and going but nemec needs to give them certain coordinates i believe so that they can have the right angle of going out and escaping the eye whereas all the other ships don't have those numbers and they get lost in the asteroid field so they inject nemec with what i assume is just like literal adrenaline and it's enough to uh keep him stable for the time being calls out instructions and they get out and they survive but they realize that uh, nemec is very seriously injured but they know of a doctor and so they're going to take him to the doctor uh the doctor operates on nemec as best he can uh he's got four hands so i guess it makes presumably (laughs) it makes life a little bit easier being a doctor that way but while vel and nemec are in the operating room with dr quadpaw skeen and andor are sitting outside talking about whether or not they think Nemec will survive. Yeah, and Skeen kind of gives him an ultimatum saying that they could they could dip right now. And Cassian is in a weird position where he understands Skeen's position and understands that it's wrong, but he's also still selfish and wants it for himself. But we get kind of like a Solo-esque stare down, and while Skeen is distracted, Cassian again just shoots him. It's, it's almost cold blood because Skeen doesn't have a chance to pull his own blaster out. He's defenseless. Yeah, Cassian is really ready to kill whenever he can, whenever it suits him best, and it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Again, should we really be rooting for him if he's this quick to make a decision to end someone's life? And after that irreparable action, Cassian walks in right after Nemec dies and kind of holds up the the doctor and Vel, um... Uh, he tells Vel he's only taking the money that he was promised, and uh, he borrows a ship from the doctor. And right as he's about to walk out the door, Vel tells Cassian that Nemec wanted him to have his manifesto. And the question, one of the questions I had was, is that really what Nemec wanted, or is that just something that Vel is giving in the hopes that Cassian will return? As if Vel knows that reading it and understanding it would help Cassian. Yeah, that's interesting. And because I know that he takes it to heart because he we come back to it in a future episode. But by the end of this episode, we return to Luthen for a brief moment and he hears that the heist was successful and that the end goal was met and they have 80 million credits. Regardless, he only has two of his team left and that's Cinta and Vel. Cassian is on the run, everyone else has died, and yet he sees that it was a success because to him, he's not personal 
like others are, like Mon Mothma is. And he just knows that the heist was a success. But when Luthen learns about the heist being successful, he kind of walks into a back room and just laughs. And it's the kind of laughter that's like, I've been carrying a huge weight on my chest and now it's off and I don't have to worry about it anymore. And it's, it's something that is relatable because it's a laugh that I'm sure almost everybody has had at some point. It's like a mix of both disbelief that it was a success and relief that it's over now. And I would say that at this point, literally being the halfway point of the season, it's a turning point because everything in the past had been looking forward to this point. Now everything in the future pivots around this point, either connecting Cassian to both Aldani and his murder in the first episode, and just the repercussions that now Luthen and Mon have to deal with, and the lengths they have to go to cover it up. Um, At the end of episode six, we see Mon addressing the Senate very briefly, but we learn that practically nobody is listening to her. Um, People are kind of just leaving once she starts talking and we kind of get that understanding that mon is kind of just viewed at as just somebody who's there to be there she's no longer a great senator she's kind of the back burner person nobody cares about i would say the one thing that we can take away from this show in general as we've talked about the common person getting so much attention in the show is something that i would say is pulled from our history, and specifically biblical history, where God would choose the lowliest of lows in a person, someone who would not have been on the radar of any political government, and use them in his story for great things. And that's the whole point of movies, usually, if they follow a commoner, is that something big is going to happen. A movie would be really boring if we just followed somebody in their everyday life. There has to be something that puts a twist on it that makes us want to know about their story. Why are we watching this movie? What is different about real life that makes this interesting? Even if it's based on a true story, something happened in that true story that made it bigger than your average day on earth. And to relate that to the Bible, God used commoners of that time to do great things for him. And that's why we have the stories that we do in the Bible. And I can't wait for one day when we get to heaven and we find out the commoners of these stories, like the Israelites who were faithful to God, what their perspective on this Exodus was, and all of these different stories that that aren't recorded, but definitely happened, and we will one day get to hear them, and that's going to be so great. Yeah, this this series does help remind us of that, and it's a reminder, I think, that a lot of people need, and that's God uses, yes, he does use big, important people, Billy, the Billy Grahams of the world, but he also uses the common Joes, the ordinary people. I mean, he took a shepherd boy and made him king. He uses the ordinary people of the world to do great things. That's kind of his his thing. He does that a lot. And the, the least of these will be the most among you. But with that, we're going to cut it short at episode six. We are going to do a part two eventually. This is just a really long episode. We've been talking for a long time. I'm sorry if this is a longer episode than usual. This is our first time doing a TV show. It kind of takes a little bit longer than a movie. So I apologize if you are struggling to listen to a long episode, but there's a lot to talk about. Let us know your thoughts on Andor in our Discord where you can join and have some good discussion. We talk as a community and we pose some interesting questions. So join us there. Follow us on Instagram where I post some memes sometimes and have a fun time over there. And follow us wherever you're listening right now and let your friends know that anywhere they listen to podcasts, they can listen to the show. I think your friends would really enjoy this, especially if they love movies as much as we do. We got some great things coming up. I look forward to hearing 
hearing your guys' thoughts about Andor, about any of these episodes that we've talked about, and any of the other things that we talk about in the future on this podcast. So look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts about that. Yeah, and stay tuned for part two of Andor, where we will discuss episodes 7 through 12 and what we like about those. But until then, uh, you guys have a great day. We love you. Peace. See you guys later.